0: Worship is every day of the week, and Lord, to serve you is something we are to be doing all times, through the power of your Spirit, by your grace. But Lord, we know that just for centuries, your church has gathered each week on the Lord's Day to focus attention as a body together, a family, to give Christ <clears throat> honor and praise. And Lord, I pray that you would work in us to be more attentive to one another, and especially to you. And and Lord, being here on time so that we may worship fully together. and Lord, I pray this would not be something that we would see as a, a rule or or just a have to do, but something that, Lord, we see as important and want to do. And, and And Lord, we know ultimately, too, it's not that our bodies being here is what's important, it's that our hearts are here. And so I pray, God, you would work in us to honor you in this way. And Lord, we ask, too, as we look to your word, that you would give us understanding, that you would stir our hearts to to know it and to live it out so that we may live lives that are worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. And we pray in his name. Amen. Okay. well, it was 120 years ago, as of last month, actually, when H.G. Wells published his book, The Time Machine was a book which really captured the imagination of many in his day, and this idea popularized this concept of time travel. And it's a, it's a fascination with time travel that really hasn't subsided, has it? I mean, it's pervasive within our own culture. If you look at any movie or book or even documentaries, particularly those related to space or science fiction, there's probably going to be some element of time travel, traveling to the future, to the past. It's, it seems ubiquitous these days in regards to that last several weeks, we've been reading about the experiences of a time traveler, a man named Zechariah. And this man, contrary to the time traveler in H.G. Wells' book, and contrary to those we might see in various movies or shows, Zechariah really did see the future. He really did see what was about to take place. And he didn't construct a time machine. He didn't get on a ship and go at warp speed. He, He didn't find himself a wormhole to travel through. And by the way, the technical term for wormhole. Can you hear me still? Was that the AC that shut off? Ignore the distractions. (laughs) Ignore the fact you might just get hot and really, you know, really... I'm going to start seeing the fans going quicker in a minute. But where was I? Oh, he didn't have to go through a wormhole, which technically, by the way, is known as an Einstein-Rosen bridge. For those of you astronomers... This was not something Zechariah had to do. All he did was go to bed one night, one February night, about 2,500 years ago. And in that moment, the Lord gave him eight particular visions which showed him the future and showed him what was to take place in the future. And fortunately for us, Zechariah wrote these things down so that we could have an understanding, so that we could see what was about to take place. And he wrote these things not just for the people of Judah, But also for us. Over the course of these last several weeks, we have looked at seven of the eight visions that Zechariah was given. Visions which describe God's commitment to his people to, to protect them, to prosper them, to bless them, to cleanse them, to dwell with them. Visions that describe God's desire that his people be holy. Visions that talk about God's empowering Holy Spirit giving them the ability to do the work that he had called them to do. Visions which show God's judgment and his hatred for sin. From these visions, and the last of which we're going to look at this morning, from these visions we see that their focus was on something, though, that was far greater than the temple construction project that the prophets were there to encourage them to do. The focus of these visions was to point them to something that this project was ultimately pointing to, someone that it was ultimately drawing their attention to. And so this morning as we consider Zechariah's eighth and last Vision. We're going to find out what or or particularly who these visions are really about and how they are significant for us. And so with that, if you'd please open your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 6. And I'd ask if you'd also please stand in honor of what God has spoken to us. Zechariah chapter 6. He begins in verse 1 with these words when he says, Now I lifted up my eyes again and looked and behold... Four chariots were coming forth from between the two mountains, and the mountains were bronze mountains. With the first chariot were red horses, with the second chariot black horses, with the third chariot white horses, and with the fourth chariot strong dappled horses. Then I spoke and said to the angel who was speaking with me, what are these, my Lord? The angel replied to me, these are the four spirits of heaven going forth after standing before the Lord of all the earth, with one of which the black horses are going forth to the north country, and the white horses go forth after them. While the dappled ones go forth to the south country. When the strong ones went out, they were eager to go patrol the earth, and he said, Go patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried out to me and spoke to me, saying, See, those who are going to the land of the north have appeased my wrath in the land of the north. And we'll stop there at the end of that vision. Thank you. you Maybe seated. So here, here in this last vision, we find ourselves in a somewhat familiar scene. In fact, if you remember back to Zechariah's first vision, that vision too had horses in it, didn't it? And that vision too had horses that were described having different colors. And that vision as well, these horses were located within a valley, just as they are here between the two mountains. So we see there are some similarities. And while there are similarities, there are also some differences. One of the key differences here is that the horses are not by themselves. They are pulling chariots. In addition to that, the colors of these horses are not all exactly the same as the ones in the first vision. And the mission in that first vision was for them to reconnoiter, to do a survey. But in this vision, the horses that are pulling the chariots have come to do a far more ominous mission. And we'll see that in a moment. But even with these differences, even with those changes or or differences between these visions, they are similar enough to really serve like bookends of these visions, these eight visions. They are similar enough to show us that these are not eight isolated scenes that are separate in content and theme, but actually they all tie together. They all focus on a particular and important theme and person, if you will. And we're going to see that in a moment as well. And also, too, as we look at these visions, there's been a progression. Has been a progression in terms of as it's building to a point? And we've seen that progression in a subtle way through a particular Hebrew verb. I mentioned this last time we looked at the last vision. A Hebrew verb, yetzah, which means to, to go forth or to come forth. In fact, we see it here in the very first verse, chapter 6, when the horse chariots were coming forth. And this verb, yetzah, it occurs about 15 times in Zechariah's eight visions. But what's interesting is the frequency of its occurrence builds. In the first five visions, it's only found twice. But in the sixth vision, it's found twice. In the seventh vision, it's found four times. And in this eighth vision, it's given seven times. So there's almost like this this building up of activity. It's moving towards something at a rapid pace. The climactic event that is about to come. And indeed, in this last vision, we see there's a flurry of activity. Chariots going out, coming back, going forth, coming forth. And in this vision, Zechariah begins, as he says in verse 1 Then I lifted up my eyes. Again, a new scene was presented before him. And this scene had these chariots with horses pulling out between these two mountains, storming towards him. Those in Zechariah's day would understand what those chariots meant. They often were used to carry dignitaries or kings, but the most prevalent occurrence, the most prevalent idea that's associated with chariots is that they were employed as instruments of war. The people of Zechariah's day would understand this, that in contrast to the first vision, the horses there were simply doing a survey of the land. They would understand the fact the horses here, which are pulling chariots, have come on a mission of judgment. They've come for war. That's likely why he describes the mountains here as bronze mountains, for bronze at times in the Old Testament signify this idea of judgment. Do you remember in Moses in the time in the wilderness when there was a bronze serpent raised up as judgment upon the people who had rebelled against God? And these mountains here that are described here are literal mountains. They, uh, some believe they're figurative and think they represent God's power or east and west or heaven and earth, but... But as in every other vision that Zechariah was given, he was shown real objects. Remember the lampstand, the scroll, Joshua, the high priest, um, the the myrtle trees, the horses in the first vision. All these things were real objects which all represented or presented an image that had a particular message. That's the same case here. These two mountains, which in the Hebrew are called the mountains are likely those that uh, were right to outside Jerusalem, and part of Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives and Mount Zion. The Mount of Olives is the Temple Mount. Or, sorry, got that confused. The Mount Zion is the Temple Mount. The Mount of Olives is just outside of Jerusalem. And between those two is the valley, the Kidron Valley, which Joel chapter 3 described as the Valley of Judgment. And so that would probably fit best to what's being seen here. That there's a picture that Zechariah sees that between the Mount of Olives and the the Temple Mount, these chariots coming forth through the Kidron Valley. A picture of divine judgment. And so, as they are approaching him, there's an interesting feature that he mentions. I already mentioned it earlier, but in verses 2 and 3, he notes that these horses are of different colors. There's one chariot that has black horses pulling it. Another has red horses. Another has white horses. And then a fourth has these dappled or spotted horses. Horses that are pulling the chariot. And as you'd expect, since we have these various colors mentioned, there's a number of theories as to what they might signify. In fact, the number of theories are legion. There's some that believe that, well, these colors, they really hold no symbolism at all. They're just there to describe the scene in more detail. While others say, well, no, these four colors represent the four kingdoms of Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome. Pretty interesting to see how they come up with that. But some believe that's what they represent. Others say that these four colors are the same as those of the four horsemen in the apocalypse. In Revelation chapter 6, you remember there during tribulation, there's a description of these four horses going out, um, red and black and uh, I think uh, pale. Pale horse was there, white horse, and they went out and they carried out God's judgment. And so some say, well, this is the same vision being shown here. But the thing is, we have to remember that, for one, the people in Zechariah's day didn't have John's vision, Revelation chapter 6. And in John's vision, John described what the various colors meant. He said the white signified victory or conquering, the red signified um, war, the the uh, black horse signified uh, famine, I think it was, and the ashen horse signified death. And so there John explained it. Here, Zechariah doesn't. He just says that there are four chariots that are being pulled by these various colored horses, Really, the focus here isn't the color of the horses. The focus here is on what these chariots represented and what the mission was they were given. And we see that in the following verses. That is the important thing. And, of course, Zechariah picks up on that because he says, as he was customarily prone to do, he says, What are these? Speaking to our old friend, the interpreting angel. And the interpreting angel tells him in verse 5, These are the four spirits of heaven who are going forth. There's our verb, yetzah, again. Who are going forth after standing before the Lord of the earth. Here we have the four spirits mentioned. Now, some translations have the four winds of heaven The word there for ruach, which can be translated as wind also or spirit or breath. But here, because it's described as these are the four spirits who are standing before the Lord of the earth, they must be living beings. They're angelic beings. In fact, we often see this in Scripture. The prophet Micaiah saw us. He got a glimpse of the throne room of heaven in 1 Kings 22. He saw angelic beings standing before the throne. Or Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7 verse 10, that's what he saw. If you remember Gabriel when he came to visit another Zechariah in the temple in Luke chapter 1. You remember what he told Zechariah? He says, I am Gabriel who stands before the presence of God. And so here we have these chariots, which represent angelic beings who st- were standing in the presence of God, ready for a mission, and so God gives them a mission. And the mission is described here in Zechariah 6. And as it unfolds, we see in verse 6 in particular, it describes how the, the, horse, the black horses and the chariot they were pulling, they traveled to the north. And then it says in verse 6 that the white horses go after them. And then after that, it talks about the, the dappled horses or the spotted horses going south. Now what's the significance of this? Well, one, for the people of Israel, when, you're, when, you, when, when they would hear the term the North," they would be thinking primarily the empires of, of Babylon and Assyria, those who were God's enemies in their day, and also to the south, their longtime nemesis, Egypt. And before looking at verse seven and considering this in greater detail, there's a couple of interpretive problems that I think are important to note here in verse six. Because I know some of you may have a New International Version translation. And in that translation, which generally I I like, but in that translation, this particular verse, it says here that the white horses went toward the west. It doesn't say it went after the black horses. But it went towards the west. And the NIV did this because the word that is translated them, like by the New American Standard Version, which has them, they say, well, that Hebrew word actually has a letter missing. It's really the word for C. And so what it's saying here is they went after the sea, or the sea in those days, when you would say the sea, you'd be referring to the Mediterranean, which was to the west. And so they put in there that the, these horses, the white horses, went west. Now, there's only one little problem with that. There's no manuscript evidence anywhere that would support this claim. So the question, well, why did they do that then? Well, we'll get to that in a minute. Also, too, there's another peculiarity about this passage. Did you notice the red horses are not mentioned? What about the red horses? Where are they? What are they doing? What about the red horses? Well, one translation, I think it was the New English Bible, made a decision. They followed one other translation, a Syriac version, and said, well, the red horses, and they actually put this line in the text, though there's no evidence for it, they said, the red horses went east. They just added it in there. The question now, why would they do that? Why would they do that? Well, Here's a great example, and we're all prone to this, and we have to be careful of reading into the passage. Because what you have here is, think about it, you've got four chariots, right? You've got a chariot going north, a chariot going south. Now, what do those directions on the compass have to do with the number four? There's two other directions, right? And so the natural assumption, the logical thing would be, well, you've got some going north, some going south. You must have the other two going east and west, right? There's two problems with that. One is, there's a logistic problem, a pragmatic issue. Because if, if they got one of the chariots started traveling out west and started going a little bit of a distance, they would end up in the Mediterranean Sea. And if you had tra- horses going east, they would end up in a very large, very dry, very hot desert. And so anybody who had any sense, any military commander would know, if you're in Israel, you don't go east and west when you go out to battle. You go north and south, and then you fan out from there. So there's a logistic issue, but also, too, if you think about this is an example of preconceived notions being imported into the text. This is what we call eisegesis. And so we have to be very careful. Now, I do agree. The absence of the red horses is is rather peculiar. Why are they not listed here? What What are they doing? Are they just sitting around waiting for instruction? Right. We don't know what happened with them. Some think maybe they were left in reserve because that would be a normal military tactic. You would send out not all of your forces, but most of them, keeping some in reserve. There's another interesting theory that Old Testament scholar Eugene Merrill proposed. I think it's actually quite interesting and may fit. He said that perhaps the red horses were the ones pulling the commander. Because if you remember back to the first vision, do you remember who was in that vision on the red horse? The angel of the Lord? And he commanded the other horses to go out and do their patrolling. So perhaps, maybe, given that the red horses here were, were waiting there because it was the commander who was on those. But we can't know for sure. We can't build a conviction around this. But I just wanted to bring that up just to caution us to remember, don't import what you think should be there into the text. Let it speak for itself. We do see in verse 7 though that eventually all the horses which are described as a whole as strong horses do end up patrolling or walking to and fro around the earth. And we know that they're walking to and fro, that patrolling, which is the same word used back in the first vision. In that case, in the first vision, they went out patrolling to survey the land, to reconnoiter. But in this particular vision, they went out in judgment, to carry out judgment. And we know this by two things. One is the fact that there are chariots that are going forth, and the second is a fact, they're associated with war. The second fact is, look at the end of verse 8. Notice there what it says, when the chariots go into the north, and it says, in the American Standard, it says, my wrath is appeased. You may have, I think in the ESV, it says that my spirit is at rest, but it's the same idea. These horses went out to carry out judgment, God's judgment against sin, and that has appeased or put to rest his spirit. So we see here this reference again to the land of of the north. And again, in the people's minds, that land would be the region of Babylon. That would be the first thing that would come to their minds. And remember, too, the previous vision. There's a connection here. Remember the previous vision with the ephah and the ephah with lady wickedness in it? And it was taken where? You remember? To the land of Shinar, right? If you remember, Shinar was the place, the region where the Tower of Babel was built. The first worldwide rebellion against God took place there. It's the same region as Babylon, and that is where the horses went. And the Babylon, too, if you remember, is not only the place where the first worldwide rebellion took place against God, but it is also in the Revelation 17 and 18 described where Babylon will be the last world empire arrayed against God in rebellion against Him. And so, this place, Babylon in the north, represented those who are opposed to God. And when it suffers judgment, as these chariots go forth to take out God's wrath upon them, his spirit is appeased. And so, this eighth vision really brings some closure to that seventh vision, because that seventh vision ended rather oddly, right? It talked about uh, Lady Wickedness going to the land of the north to Shinar, and there she'd be worshipped, a pedestal be made, and then it ended. It's like, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. How is that okay? How is it okay that wickedness continue to be worshipped in that land? God, you're not going to do anything about it? Well, then we have this eighth vision where God describes what he is going to do about it. He gives a sense of closure here that judgment will come. Babylon will be dealt with. All the nations will be dealt with as he describes the chariots going forth in all the land. And there's our eighth vision. That's it. There you have it. That's what took place. The last of Zechariah's visions. And the question before us then is, well, what, what's the point then? What's the point not only the eighth vision, but, but if all these kind of come as a collection together, what is the point of all of them? What does it have to do with us? Well, if you remember, these visions describe future events, right? For the most part. Future events. And most of the future events, not only to Zechariah's day, but also to ours, right? And so, as God's children, should we not also have a vested interest in what's going to happen in the future? Should we not? You're with me, right? Another thing is that many of these events that are described here in Zechariah's visions, they're either alluded to or or paralleled or referenced in a New Testament book. In fact, in the last New Testament book, John's book of the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation... In fact, I noted earlier how the eighth vision in Zechariah has some similarities to uh, Revelation chapter 6 and the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And like Revelation, where there's this buildup in the book of Revelation, right, to the, to the main event, to the key event in chapter 19, which is what? You should all know this. It's the main event. Jesus coming back, right? Great white horse. Zechariah, there's a, there's a similar progression. I mentioned it earlier, it's, it's subtly communicated through that verb of for going forth and, and coming forth. But we're going to see in a moment that all of these visions have been building up to something. All of these visions have been directing our attention to a particular event, but more importantly, a particular person. Someone who's about to come. For notice this last vision in Zechariah 6, it doesn't end without comment. It's not like they were given... He was given these eight visions, and then, okay, close the book on that one. Let's move on to another topic. For if you notice, there's a few more verses in chapter 6. And in those verses, it's where we see all these messages come together. In those verses, we see it reveal the central theme, which he has been directing our attention to, of all the things that he has seen. In those verses, we see a message that history has been waiting for since the days of the garden. And to see that message, take a look at verse 9. There it says, The word of the Lord also came to me, saying, Take an offering from the exiles, from Heldai to Beja and Jediah, and you go the same day and enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah, where they have arrived from Babylon. Take silver and gold, make an ornate crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest. Then say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. Now the crown will become a reminder in the temple of the Lord to Halem, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hain, the son of Zephaniah. Those who are far off will come and build the temple of the Lord. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and it will take place if you completely obey the Lord your God. In this message, it it begins with the introductory formula. The word of the Lord came to Zechariah. And it indicates that Zechariah was now receiving a direct message from the Lord. But this message, this word from the Lord, wasn't given a timestamp. It wasn't indicated when it actually happened, specifically like in verse 1 of chapter 1 or later in chapter 7, verse 1. And so I take that to mean that this message comes probably immediately after the eight visions. Some scholars believe perhaps even the next morning. As he gets up ready to start the day, he receives this message from the Lord. Because notice that reference in verse 10 to carrying out these instructions in the same day. He was given instructions, again, probably the very next day after these visions. And this word given to him, this message, was really a task. He was given a symbolic task. So something the Lord often did with his prophets where he would have them say or, or do something that was a symbolic. You remember Isaiah who was laying down on his side for months and months and months. Or when Jeremiah was told to go buy a piece of property because the Lord had a message to send to the people through that. Or when just when Jeremiah was sent to the potter's house. Or Abijah, when he stood before Jeroboam and ripped the cloak as a sign that the nation would be ripped. There there were many times where the prophets were given these assignments, these activities, and within the activity, there was a message that was to be for the people. And that's the same thing taking place here with Zechariah. Here, God asks Zechariah to make a particular object, right? And what was that object he was to make? A royal crown. A royal crown. And so he says, Zechariah, I want you to go over to Josiah's house. Josiah, the son of Jephaniah. And I want there's three guys there. Three guys that he's housing. Three guys that have come from Babylon. They are exiles too. They've come back from Babylon and they've brought some things with them. Some gold and silver. So I want you to go to Josiah's house and get that gold and silver from them. It's an interesting example here, by the way, that not everybody came back to Judah when Cyrus issued that decree 20 years prior for the people of Judah that they could go back and rebuild the temple. Ezra talks about the fact that only about 50,000 or less than 50,000 actually took Cyrus's, took Cyrus' offer. A number of them, in fact, the majority of the Jews stayed in Babylon. They had been there for almost two generations. And so many of them stayed. But what happened there is they, at times, would get these collections. They would collect gold, silver, supplies, materials, and they would send them to the people in Jerusalem. We see an example of that in Ezra 7, where Ezra, when he went back from uh, Babylon into Judah, he came with him, there were people with him, and they made a collection. They took a collection of gold and silver and brought it with them to bring to the people upon their arrival in Judah. And that's likely what took place here. We have these three men, Heldi, Tobijah, and Jediah, which a couple of them have nicknames, by the way, they're mentioned later. But these three men were probably one such envoy. They got a collection from the people in in Babylon, and they came back to bring it to people of Judah, perhaps even to use for the rebuilding of the temple. And in this, we again see the providence of God in action, don't we? I mean, we think about any journey as like, you know, from from Jerusalem to Babylon is about 500 miles. Now, in a car, you could probably make that if you wanted to in one day, unless you have little kids, and then it's probably an eight-day trip. But... Right, you, could, you can make that journey in a fairly short time. We don't think about the fact that in these days, they didn't have vehicles like that. So 500 miles would take several weeks. And here you have a situation where these guys, several weeks prior to, uh, to uh, Zechariah's visions, start this trip out to Jerusalem with these supplies, supplies that were available at the very time when Zechariah was ready to receive them and told to take them to build this crown. And so we see God working in various ways, and his providence at work. And again, the, this gold and the silver that they had brought from Babylon was to be used by Zechariah to have a crown made. And we don't know if Zechariah was a metallurgist himself. You know, Perhaps he had a side business and can do this on his own. Or, or perhaps Josiah had some expertise in, in working with gold and silver. Or perhaps the three guys that came. We aren't told who actually made this crown, but we are told Zechariah was to make sure it happened. To have this crown made. And then, Zechariah was to hold a, a, ceremon- a coronation ceremony of sorts. Verse 11 describes that. But this coronation was not for somebody that they would have expected. For when Zechariah was told in verse 11, Zechariah, make a crown and set it on the head of... Which name would he have expected to be listed there? Which name would he have expected to be told? Right? Who was the civic leader at the time? Who was the one there living in that day who was actually from the line of David and who was a rightful heir to the throne of David? Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. That's the name certainly that Zechariah would have expected to hear. For just a couple months earlier, the prophet Haggai, God spoke to the prophet Haggai at the end of chapter 2, verse 23, where he said through Haggai, Zechariah, I have chosen you to be like a signet ring. You're my signet ring. Or he said it to Zerubbabel, I'm sorry. He said, Zerubbabel, I have chosen you as a signet ring. And so I'm, I'm pretty sure that, that Zechariah then, when he was told, take this crown, okay, I know where this is going, Lord. Take this crown and take it and put it on the head of... But it wasn't Zerubbabel, was it? Who did he say? Joshua. Put it on the head of Joshua. And it's kind of like in those movies where Arr! everything just comes to a stop. Wait a minute. God, did I hear you right? Are you sure about this? Joshua? Not not Zerubbabel. Joshua. But 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 there's one problem, Lord. He he's the high priest. God says, I, I know that. In fact, notice, notice there. He says, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. That Joshua. He's the one I want you to put a crown on his head. But see, there's a problem with this, and I don't think we appreciate it today as much as it would have been understood back in the day when Zechariah said these words people will be thinking, wait, wait wait a minute. There's a line here in Israel between priest and king. Priests don't do king stuff. And, and, And kings don't do priestly duties. There's a clear line. God separated that. There's a tribe of Levi that produces the priests, and the kings come from the line of David in the tribe of Judah. We don't cross that line. In fact, King Uzziah in 2 Chronicles 26, he learned that lesson the hard way. One day he thought he was all that, and he went into the temple, took some of the incense, went over to the altar of incense, started burning it. And then the Azariah, the priest of the day, he runs in there, and there are 80 guys with him. He says, hey, hey, Uzziah, stop! What are you doing? That's not allowed! He said, God has given that for the priest to do, and the priest alone. He said, get out of here! He actually said that to the king. <laughs> of course, he had 80 guys behind him, so he probably a little bit of confidence, but... He said, get, get out of here, Uzziah. You're not supposed to be doing that. And then the text says God struck Uzziah with leprosy. Because, again, God had clearly demarcated the line between priest and king. And many rabbinical commentators, they even say that, well, there must be a, an error in the text here, really meant to say Zerubbabel, not Joshua. But no, Joshua was the name that's written there. Joshua was the name given to Zechariah, to the person that he was to crown and I thought about this yesterday. You know, think about how awkward that ceremony must have been. Because this really happened, right? He really had the crown made. He was instructed to do that. And he went and found Joshua. He said, Joshua, um, the Lord told me we've got, we got to do something here. So just stand right there. And and as he's taking the crown out, you know, Joshua's going, okay, what's he doing with that? Um, Joshua, Yeah, take your headdress off. Yeah, yeah. Joshua, where are, you, where are you going? Joshua, stand still a minute because he's trying to put that crown on his head, right? Joshua's going, no, this ain't happening to me, buddy. Right? Because he knew this was not something you should do. I'm a priest. So no, God, God told me to do this. God said this had to be done. So the question is why? Why this radical event? Why this particular task? Why was it given to Zechariah to do? To crown the high priest? Well, we're told in verse 12 what the reason is. And before looking there, there's one cool trivia fact. Those of you trivial pursuit people... Um, Old Testament scholar Charles Feinberg noted this. He said, this verse, verse 11, is one of only 26 verses in all the Old Testament, which has every letter of the Hebrew alphabet in the verse. It's kind of interesting. Now, there's no hidden meaning in that. There's no Bible code to be. I just thought it was interesting. So anyway, moving on. We come to find that God was not crowning Joshua as king. That wasn't the message being communicated here. But rather, this this whole coronation ceremony was intended to picture someone else. Notice in verse 12, after Zechariah had placed the crown upon Joshua's head, he was then instructed to say these words, Behold, the man branches his name. He will branch out from where he is and he will build the temple of the Lord. And so in that we see this crowning of the high priest of Israel at the time. This crowning was a symbol. It was a picture. It was a a type of someone that was to come after Joshua. And it was the man known as the branch. This isn't the first time we've seen the branch referred to in Zechariah, right? If you remember back to Zechariah chapter 3. At the end of that vision, that vision was the one with Joshua again, the high priest who was there and he had filthy garments on. The angel of the Lord had those removed and given clean garments. And then at the end of that vision, we have described for us the branch who was the one who would take away the sins of Israel and remove their iniquity. And when we looked at that vision several weeks ago, we saw that the the branch, that title was a common title in reference to, to the Messiah. In fact, he was often referenced as such in the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah. Jeremiah 23, 5 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. And remember, Jeremiah was a prophet who prophesied uh, partly in the times of the exile. And so I'm certain that what he had said about the branch would be familiar to the people in Zechariah's day. They would have known that the branch was a reference, a term. It signified the one who would come up out of the line of David, like a new shoot, which is really what the word branch has the idea of, of a sprouting. And so when Zechariah says here the branch, that's the picture they would have. He's, He's talking about this coming one from the line of David. Some say, Zechariah's description of this Messiah coming out was coming out from humble beginnings. But I think the given the context here of of the royalty that's being evolved, the crown being made, the focus is on the branch's Davidic heritage. And so again, I think that would only further puzzle Zechariah. Because if the branch is associated with royalty, he's making this crown. He said, Okay, I get the crown part, Lord, in this whole thing, but but what I don't get is the one I'm putting the crown on. This 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 doesn't fit. He's the branch? That the branch was, was from the line of David, was a king. But this guy's a priest. What's this supposed to mean? But all that is cleared up in the next words in verse 13. And beloved, this verse, verse 13, has to be considered among the most profound and informative declarations about the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, not only in the Old Testament, but anywhere in Scripture. The message here given in verse 13, the description of the Messiah, is utterly profound. For nearly everything, everything about the work of Christ, his eternal role, what he has done, and what it means for us, all of this, all of it is wrapped up in these few words found in the middle of verse 13. When God says to Zechariah, he will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne and he will be a priest forever on his throne. We can't miss the significance of that statement. We can't miss it. This verse is, it's not only the key to all of Zechariah's visions. It's not only the key to all the book of Zechariah. It is what the Old Testament has pointed to. It is what the New Testament has revealed clearly. Just as Hebrew scholar David Barone says, how full of significance is this one sentence of Holy Writ? And he has an exclamation point there. As is the manner of Zechariah, we have in these four Hebrew words, he's speaking of the verbs there, these four Hebrew words, a terse summary of nearly all that the former prophets have spoken of Messiah and his work. Beloved, this picture, this picture that he's given of a high priest, Wearing a crown. That represents the apex of history. You realize this Just that one picture, that one image, represents the climax of history. It, it, it's the message of the Bible, or I think Pastor Kemp's new favorite word is metanarrative. It's the story of the Bible. All of it is summarized in that one picture, given to an Old Testament prophet over two millennia ago. It's all summarized right there. The mystery of the Messiah. The picture of the the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. The the man in the visions, the son of man in Daniel 7 described there. Jeremiah's prediction of the branch who would judge and rule in righteousness. All of it, all the Old Testament focus is put Right together here in that moment, in that picture. Christ is both king and priest forever. For so long, you you realize the rabbis struggle with these Old Testament prophecies. They struggled, thinking they, they thought there were two people coming. They thought there was a suffering servant and the Messiah, the king. They could not reconcile. They couldn't see how those two fit together. They couldn't see how the coming king of David who would rule and, and he was this regal figure, this Messiah who would be king and all his glory, they couldn't see how that was the same one who would be marred more than any man. They couldn't fit together. They couldn't see how the, the Messiah could suffer and die and atone for the sins of the many. They, they couldn't fit them together. But here, in this vision, at the end of this eighth vision, The mystery is explained. This royal king, this this coming one who would come in glory and majesty and loyalty and honor and fame. This one who will rule for eternity. This man who was promised from days of old, from the garden, the days of the garden, the one who would crush the head of the serpent. This man who's wearing kingly robes has under those kingly robes the garments of a priest. And just such a description of the Messiah was offered in Psalm 110. Psalm which begins with that well-known verse that's quoted often in the New Testament where David says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. It's clearly a reference to the Messiah. But then just a few verses later in that same Psalm, in Psalm 110 verse 4, it says of the Messiah this amazing statement. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Again, a profound statement. Hebrews 5 through 7 make, give a full description of that. They tease out what that means, this Melchizedek as the priest king who was a, a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, in the same way as Joshua is a type here in Zechariah 6. But notice here something very important. Notice here in Zechariah 6 that the branch is, is not a priest who is continually doing priestly duties. It says here, after he builds the temple, it says that he's going to sit down. On a throne as the priest. Now, there's a couple of very unusual features to that because, for one thing, none of the temples had a throne in them. Not Moses' tabernacle, not Solomon's temple, not this temple that's going to be completed in a few years by Zerubbabel, not Herod's temple when he remodeled the whole thing. None of them had a throne inside. That was only to be found in palaces. And the second thing is there was never even a chair inside of the temple. There was one to hold the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies, but there was not a chair for the priest to sit in. There were other things like the, the utensils and the showbread and the table and the lampstand and the altar of incense, but there was no chair. There was no place to sit in the temple because the priest's work was never done. It wasn't like the priest could go in there one day and on his assignment, you know what? People don't need any sacrifices. Everything's good. It's all taken care of. I can just have a seat here. That never happened. It never happened. They were to come before God to make sacrifices on behalf of the people for their sin, to make atonement that they would be forgiven. And before Jesus, this never stopped. Day after day, year after year, moment after moment, they came in, Did their work in the temple, and their work was never done. There was no seat in the temple. Hebrews 9.6 describes how the priests continually entered the tabernacle to do their work. Hebrews 7.27 describes how they daily offered up sacrifices. Hebrews 9.25 talks about how the high priest, every year, year after year after year, would go into the holy place on the Day of Atonement to offer sacrifice for the people's sins. But his work is never done. But not so with Jesus! Jesus came into the holy place. He brought a sacrifice, did he not? We just celebrated it earlier. This is my body. He didn't bring an animal in there. Those were insufficient. He brought himself in there. He slit his own throat. He poured out his own blood on the altar, if you will. As the ultimate Once for all sacrifice. And after that work, he came and sat down. Do you see the significance of this throne in the temple? It wasn't just because it was a kingly throne. It was a place to sit because the work was done. It's done. So amazing. So encouraging. He is our great high priest. He will always be our high priest. For as he sits upon the throne, he will sit there forever, ruling in righteousness. And he still wears evidence of what brought him there and what gave him that right and authority. He still wears that evidence on his hands and in his side. As Hebrews 7, 24 says, But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Since, he's always, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because he did once for all when he offered up himself. Our salvation is eternally secure, through the eternal work of Christ Jesus. The question that I want you to consider this morning, some of you here, is your salvation eternally secure? Is Jesus your high priest? Is He the one to whom you have confessed your sins? Have you expressed your desire to turn from your sins and put your trust in Him as your eternal high priest and intercessor on your behalf? Have you acknowledged That Jesus, by his death on the cross and resurrection from the dead, that he's the only way to have your sins forgiven? Have you done that? Is he your high priest? Because no human high priest can do that for you. You can go to all the humans you want. They cannot remove your sins. There's only one who can do that. It's the one Zechariah is talking about here. The one who will come one day and sit upon his throne in the temple and rule as priest and king forever. The Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, as we consider his priestly work, I was reminded of Philippians 2. It kind of describes his his role as priest and king there. You know, Paul talks about that he was the one, the Lord Jesus came and he humbled himself, became a man, humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. And through that act, As our priest, as he offered his body, it says that God then highly exalted him. Right? So he would do the name above every name and that every knee would bow and tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. He is both priest and king. And you know that? Zechariah's message here pictures that day. It pictures the day when he finished building the temple, a reference to the millennial temple there. And he goes... And ascends to the throne as priest and king. And all will declare, confess Jesus is Lord. Zechariah pictures that day. The great priest will sit on his throne. And notice in verse 13, he will bear the honor. That means his majesty, glory, beauty, splendor. Again, it pictures that day when every tongue confesses that he is Lord. Notice in verse 15, Zechariah refers to someone else. He says, those who are far off. Who's that? That's us. (laughs) Again, just like back in chapter 2, in verse 11, when he described many nations coming to him, again, the far off ones, the far out ones, that's us. We're mentioned here. We're described here that we will participate in this. Again, Zechariah reminds us of the fact that we're going to be there and see this. Those who are far off will be brought near. And it says that we will come and build the temple. And the Hebrew there is we will come and build in the temple. Jesus is the builder. But we will come and participate in that activity. and, And bring our sacrifices and offer them at his feet. Our gifts. We too will be there to give this glory and honor and majesty to the king. And so... Zechariah is told here, as a memorial, Zechariah, I want you to take that crown that you put on Joshua's head and I want you to take it and leave it in the temple. It's going to be a memorial, a reminder, not only to those men who came and gave the materials to make it, but it's going to be a memorial to all my people. Because think about this, there's that crown sitting there in the temple and every day as the priest goes in to do his work, again, no chair, he's always working, but every day he goes in, he sees that crown there. Again, something rather odd to be found in the temple, but what would that crown remind him of? I can remember when Zechariah back in the day made this crown and he put it on Joshua's head, the high priest, and he did that so that we would be we would know that there's a priest king that's coming. He'd be reminded of these things. And if he was one who was faithful to the Lord, he would be motivated and excited and looking forward to that, and he'd probably leave that temple and be reminding hey, I saw the crown in there. I saw the crown. And so he would encourage those around him, their hearts would be stirred in anticipation of the priest-king to come who would sit on his throne. And beloved, we too have that anticipation. We too await for the same priest-king, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to return. You know, and in this, I'm reminded why I so love this prophet. I really love Zechariah. for He shows us in these visions that they're more than about a temple being constructed. That they're, they're more about a house of worship being built. But these visions, they begin and they end with Jesus. Think back to that first vision. What is the first thing that Zechariah saw? The man in the myrtle trees. It's the first thing he says. The angel of the Lord, God the Son. What's the last thing he describes at the end of the eighth vision? The priest king on his throne. You see, it's all about Christ. They're all about Christ. He's the one who's going to fulfill all God's promises to Israel. and Beloved, in, in all this, we're reminded of something very important, that the Old Testament is not outdated, it's not insignificant, it's not of little value. The Old Testament contains important information and understanding about our Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have two books in front of you. You have one book with a, an Older Testament and a New Testament. Know your Bible. Know all of it. Because within all of it, just as we see here today, there are wonderful truths about our dear Savior that we need to know so that we can better understand and love and worship Him. Amen? Know your Bible. I thought this morning it would be appropriate to sing together the hymn, Crown Him with Many Crowns. It comes from Revelation chapter 19. Where there it talks about Christ. Remember in the main event when he returns to earth on the great white horse. It says he's wearing a crown or many diadems, many crowns. It's one crown, but they have various features upon it. What's interesting is Zechariah's crown is also a plural noun. You could literally render it crowns there. Same idea. He'll be wearing a crown. Let's sing about that, Dave. We could stand together.